Let me read you uh, the passage that, on which our, we're basing our, uh, uh, the message this, morning, this afternoon. It's the parable told by Jesus, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, Luke 16, 19 to 31, and it's printed in your bulletin. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abram far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abram replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abram replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. The subject is hell, most unpopular of all the classic doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. But I'm asking you to consider it today for two reasons. The first reason is the one I'll get to later. The first reason is I submit to you that unless you understand, unless you can reflect on, unless you can agree with the Christian doctrine of hell, you have no idea of how much love God has shown us. You won't understand the love of God unless you understand the doctrine of hell. It's my first reason. We'll get to that later. The second reason is a little bit like the first, but it's what I'm going to urge on you right now. The reason you need to consider the doctrine of hell is because of the author of it. If you believe, I'll put it this way, I think if there was anyone else who actually taught us the doctrine of hell, it would be impossible to take it. But who is it that actually teaches it to it? Who speaks the most about hell in the Bible? Of all the figures, of all the voices, is it Peter? Is it Paul? Is it Moses? Is it David? Is it Daniel? You know who it is. Who is it that gives us more teaching on the doctrine of hell than all of those guys put together? It's Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of love, the one who knew the most about love. Now, it's... It's very typical for people to say, oh, I, I respect the teachings of Christ, but I can't believe that a loving God would allow hell. can't believe that a loving God would send people to hell. I want you to see, just for a moment, the untenability of your position. Jesus talks about it constantly. Jesus was at least, at least, the most influential religious teacher in the history of the world. At least. Nobody can debate on that. 
And here's one who believed not only that God was loving and that there was the doctrine of hell was there, but he intertwined the two so much that you really can't say, you can't reject one part of what Jesus says and then go and believe in some other part. It's just totally arbitrary. It means that if he was able to do what you say I can't believe in, I can't believe in a God of love and the doctrine of hell, well, he could. And since he, is, uh, since he has the position he has, which is the most influential religious teacher in the history of the world, you should at least listen. You should at least consider. You should at least take a look. And that's all I'm asking. Uh, you know, you can't say, to, if Jesus is Lord at all, he's Lord of all, and that includes your intellect. And a Christian must never be in a position where you say, Lord Jesus, I'm less barbaric than you. I don't believe in hell. See, I'm more compassionate than you. I don't believe in hell. What, how can you do that? For a moment then, for today, let's just take a look at what Jesus teaches. And because he's a marvelous communicator, when he's teaching us about hell, he tells us a story. <laughs> you know, He tells us a story, and it's a story of two men. And if we want to understand hell, we have to see what he says about the two men in this life and what he says about the two men in the next life and then what he says about the two men in our life. Two men in this life, the next life, and our life. Number one, what does he say about Lazarus and the rich man in this life? What does he tell us about how they lived in this life? What is the main point of contrast between these two guys? Why is it that one goes to heaven and one goes to hell? What is the main reason of, for the difference? If you think, well, the main difference is the rich man was wealthy, healthy, and popular, and the poor man, Lazarus, was poor, sick, and alone. Uh, if you think that's the main contrast between the two, you've missed the point because the, this is not teaching that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not what it's teaching. The difference between these two people is that one of them has a name and the other one doesn't. Now, if you, all Bible scholars will tell you the most striking thing about this parable, the most striking thing about it, is it's the only parable in which any of the characters, only parable of Jesus in which any of the characters has a, has a proper name. There are dozens of parables, and in those parables there are scores of figures, but they're never given a proper name. They're always called a father or a mother or a woman or a man or a son or a daughter or a farmer or a sower or whatever. Only here is, does, does Jesus give one of his characters a name, and then, in obvious counterpoint, he leaves the other one nameless. Why? And here's why. Let's ask ourselves a question. Why does the rich man go to hell? Why does the rich man go to hell? Is it because, ah, yes, you see, he got his, it was ill-gotten gain. Yes, he was an insider, you know, he did insider trading. That's how he got his money. Or he poisoned his rich aunt so he could get the inheritance. Or he was a, he was a, he was a, a you know, a, 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 a member of the crime syndicate or something like that. No, there's no indication of that. Not a single bit. Why did he go to hell? Here's the reason. The word Lazarus, the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my salvation. God is my help. Lazarus has a name because God is his help. The rich man has nothing but the designation rich man. Here's why. What sends you to hell is not being rich or being poor. It's what you do with it. What sends you to hell is not uh, necessarily overt sins, like though they can, like uh, violence and, and, uh, and insider trading and, and, and stealing and so on. 
What sends you to hell is to make anything but God your help. To sit down and rest in content in anything but God is your help. The reason the rich man doesn't have a name is because all he was was a rich man. If you make riches your help, if you make riches your point, if you make riches your salvation, if you make riches your God, if you make riches your identity, you see, then that's all you are. You don't have a name. You're just a rich man because take away the riches and there's nothing left of you. You see, in verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man when he's in hell, son, you had your good things. You had your good things. Now, the philosophers for years have talked about the summum bonum. What's the summum bonum? The highest good, the main point of life. And they've debated it one way or another. What is the main good, the highest good, that a human being should live for, that you should make the point of your life? What is it? Well, the point here is the rich man had chosen his summum bonum. You've had your good thing. And his good thing was riches. And whatever you make, your help becomes who you are. And if it's anything but God, you end up with no name other than what you've made your help because there's nothing else to you. Let me show you what I mean. Here's two people. Here, here's somebody, and uh, what they live for, they, they're, they're attractive, and they live for their power to attract. They're beautiful, and their power to attract. Here's somebody else that lives for their career. Here's somebody who lives for, let's say, her children. Now, in every case, you listen to them, and they talk incessantly about the thing that is their identity, their help, their God. But take away from her, her children. Let something go wrong with her children. Take away from her, her business. Let something go wrong with her career. Take away from him, his body. Let something go wrong with his beauty. And you know what you have? What, what are they going to say? They're going to say, if I lose this thing, I'd have no reason to live. I'd have no reason to go on. And if you say that about anything, that's your help. That's your summum bonum. That's your good thing. That's your treasure. And that ends up being your name because there's nothing else to you if you take it away. Don't you see? All he was was a rich man because if you took his riches away, there would be nothing left to him. All she is is a mother because if you take away her children or something goes wrong with their children, there's nothing else to her. You see? All she is is, uh, is an ambitious career woman because if you took away her career, that's all she is. If you make anything... But God, your help, you end up being a hollow person. Don't you see? If you, for example, if you base your identity and you make your help external circumstances and external things, possessions, social status, attractiveness, whatever, you don't have a self. There is a cosmic hollowness inside you. And it, eventually, you become a nameless thing because there's nothing else to you. But even in this life, the Bible says, you can see it, can't you? Look at your little treasures. Look at the little things that you make into your help. When they're in jeopardy, what happens to you? Don't you see how upset you get? Don't you see how rattled you get? And you know why? Because you are becoming a person of surfaces only. There's no you that's always there, that's always true, underneath the circumstances, underneath the externals, regardless of whether you're attractive or not, regardless of whether you're successful or not, regardless of how your children turn out or not. 
You see the difference between the godly and the ungodly? The godly enjoy the pleasures of life, but they're not driven by them. They use them, but they're not driven by them. They're not their treasure. The ungodly enjoy God. They enjoy religion, but he's not their treasure. You see, he's not, he doesn't drive them. because He's just a means to an end. My son says, God, to this man in hell, you had your good things. Your good things were temporary, and now they're gone. Because in eternity, the only good thing that, that lasts forever is me. And so now you're just hollow, gnawing yourself in the dark, filled with self-pity and filled with an emptiness. But that emptiness starts here. It's the beginning of hell. Look at Lazarus. His name was God is my help. He had nothing. He was poor. He was sick. He had no friends. But what did he do with his suffering? What are you doing with your suffering? What sent him to heaven was not his poverty. It's what he did with it. He let his troubles, he let his suffering drive him to God so that God became his help. And as a result, he became a real person. He knew what he was. He knew who he was, regardless of whether he was rich or poor, regardless of the circumstances, come what may. There was a self, there was a core that had nothing to do with circumstances and nothing to do with externals. So he had a name. And he became greater and greater, became like a great and glorious mountain. And when eternity overtook him, that greatness exploded. And he was in heaven. Just as when eternity overtook the rich man, that emptiness exploded. And he became nothing but a rich man without riches, which is to be no one at all. He didn't have a name. Who are you? Let's move on here. But who are you? What is your name? Are you nothing but a millionaire? Are you nothing but a dancer? Are you nothing but a mother, a father? Is there anything wrong with being a mother, a father? No. Is there anything wrong with being a dancer? Is there anything wrong with being a millionaire? No. But is that all you are? Ask yourself, what is my help? Okay. I wish I could, I wish I could reach your hearts on this. I wish you could... Say to God, I don't want anything but you to be my help. Or else I'm, I'm in the suburbs of hell. I'm beginning a cosmic superficiality that's beginning to eat out my insides. Gut me. God will be my help and nothing else. All right, now, secondly. Let's look and see what the, happens to these two guys in the next life. In the next life, we see what Jesus actually directly teaches us about hell. And he teaches us two things about hell. The first thing he teaches is that hell is a place of disintegration, and the second thing he teaches is that hell is a place of justice. Disintegration and justice. Let me, let me explain. First of all, disintegration. Notice that Jesus uses the metaphor, he uses the image in the story of fire. This raging fire he talks about. Now, why would Jesus do that? And why is fire used so often in the Bible when it talks about hell? And I'll tell you why. Because fire is a place where things break down. Fire, when something is put in the flame, it burns up. What does that mean? It doesn't actually cease to exist. The things that connect the chemicals, the things that connect and make it what it is, 
those bonds are broken by the fire and it goes into pieces. It falls into pieces. Some of it becomes, you know, ox, you know vaporized. Some of it uh, breaks down into chemicals. It, fire breaks things down into pieces, into its constituent parts. Things lose their coherence and integration in fire. Fire disintegrates. What is the Bible saying? The Bible says not just hell, but sin disintegrates. Let me just lay a foundation here. The Bible says, in him all things consist. Now that makes perfect sense, does it not? But let's think about it for a minute. What does that mean? If he's the creator, in him all things consist. God and God alone, God's face, God's presence, God's heart, is the only and exclusive source of coherence in life. So as you move away from God, as you move away from his presence, you break down. The absence of God is a raging fire, spiritually speaking. Now, the Bible tells us as long as we're on this, wor- in this earth, no matter how hard we try to escape God, no matter how much we think we can rebel against God, no matter how much we're trying to move away from God, we never completely get away from him. That's part of the mercy of, what, of this life. We never get away from him. And as a result, we're always kept somewhat intact. As long as you're in this life, your body and soul are together, for example. That's why you're alive. And as long as you're here, your humanity is somewhat intact. You're still able to love to some degree. You're still able to think. You're still able to create. You're still able to communicate, you see. You're still able to love and forgive. But the Bible tells us that someday, if you continue to insist on getting away from God, you might succeed. And what hell is, is a place after we're dead, a place where those who have wanted to get away from God finally get away. And in that place, you completely break down. In that place, the disintegrating work that begins here through sin comes to its fruition and fulfillment. Now, what do I mean by disintegrating work? Listen, when you get a manual, when you, get a, you, you buy an appliance and you come home and you open it up and there's the manual. What's the manual say? The manual is full of directions. The directions are, don't do this or you will short it out. Don't do this or you'll be electrocuted. Uh, You know, permanent, permanent, you know. Uh, Don't do this or it will break down. And what do you do? Do you look at this and you say, oh, how I hate. Who does General Electric think they are telling me how to run my life? Who does Westinghouse think they are? No. You read it and you want to read it because you know that those directions simply uphold the design of the appliance. And to violate the directions is to violate the design and to lead to breakdown and disintegration. Now, what does God say? God's our creator. In him all things consist. So God says, come into my presence. Obey me. There's a lot of things that God says. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't have sex outside marriage. Be radically generous with your money and with your time. Don't abuse and don't use people. When you break his will, when you violate his directions, you disintegrate yourself. The more self-centered you are, the more proud you are, the more your life breaks down, the more you center everything on yourself, the more you become the center of your universe. It gets harder to love, harder to think. Distortions. Haven't you seen it in this life? The more self-centered people get, everybody's wrong and they're right. Nobody understands me. Everybody's out to get me. Everything's wrong. Nothing goes right for me. It's hell. It's breaking down. The more you center on yourself, the more absorbed you are in yourself, the more bitter you get. 
Physicians will tell you that to be in the grip of bitterness, to be in the grip of, of, of anger, to be in the grip of jealousy, to be in the grip of self-pity destroys your body. Hypertension, ulcers, it destroys your body, but it's nothing compared to what it does to your soul. And in hell, finally, the anger breaks out like a, a, a forest fire. The self-pity, the self-centeredness rages like crazy. In hell, you completely disintegrate. You get, you finally, your, your, your self-centeredness becomes your prison and your pride explodes into an ever-increasing mushroom cloud. And the more proud you get, the more you're sure that everybody's wrong, nobody has done you right, everything's an injustice, the less you're able to love, the less you're able to give, the, and your humanity destroys itself. Sin is the suicidal action of a person against its own humanity. A mind that sins is becoming less of a mind. A, a heart that sins is becoming less than a heart. A will that sins is, be, is killing itself and destroying its own willpower. Sin is, in the Old Testament, sin is always called folly, foolishness, because it sets up, it sets up uh, tensions within the structure and fabric of life that always leads to a breakdown. Sin is disintegration. And that's what hell is. Hell is just simply the logical projection of what starts here. So, you know, C.S. Lewis puts it in, uh, you know, I, I put a bunch of quotes by him on hell in the bulletin, but C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it, you can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day, there will come a day, when you can do that no longer, then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on and on and on forever like a machine. See, first you are Mary or John who grumbles. Then you become John or Mary, the grumbler. And finally, you just become a grumble. You can almost see it with some people, even in this life. It's like sometimes you, you know, you know sometimes you see a fire and it's nothing but ashes, but you know if you blow out, the, if blow the ashes away underneath it all, there's some hot coals and you get the fire going again. With some people, you just blow and there's nothing but ashes left. There's nothing but a grumble left. There's nothing but bitterness left. There's nothing but envy left. There's nothing but self-pity left. Sin is fire. Sin is disintegration. And hell is nothing more but the projection of that. And that's why at one of these places... Look, when a car is totaled, it doesn't stop to exist. It doesn't cease existing. It means that it's been disconnected from itself. The parts have been disconnected, so it can't function as a car. When human beings are totaled in hell, they don't stop existing but they are completely incapable of doing the things that make you human. Your sin and your pride and your self-centeredness make you not only incapable of love, but you don't even want it. Not only incapable of forgiveness, but you'd never ask for it. It's all humbug, you see. It's all somebody trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And yet your conscience will roar like a hungry lion and never ever be satisfied forever. So Lewis describes one of his characters in part of his fiction this way. He says, The forces which had begun years ago to eat away his humanity had now completed their work. The intoxicated will, which had been slowly poisoning the intelligence and the affections, had now at last poisoned itself, and the whole psychic organism had fallen to pieces. Only a ghost was left. An everlasting unrest, a crumbling, a ruin, an odor of decay. <laughs>
hell. It's a place of disintegration. Sin is fire. But that's not all we're told about here, okay? We're also told that sin is justice. It's a place, um, pardon me, hell is a place of justice. Now, here's what I mean. People say, oh, now let's, let's get to it, all right? People say, wow, you know, you're just raising the hair on the back of my neck. You're giving me goosebumps. It's a frightening thing. But I can't even believe in a place like this. How could a loving God even have a place like this? How in the world could a loving God send people to hell? And the answer is, the doctrine of hell is the most fair and just doctrine anywhere in the Bible. There's nothing unfair about it. There's nothing unjust. There's nothing inappropriate about it. And you can see it when you see that when the, the rich man in hell opens his mouth, he does not ask to get out and he does not ask for forgiveness. Here's what I mean. If you want to understand something about why people are in hell, you have to completely get rid of this idea you know, of hell being a kind of little hole and all these poor little people are crying to get out of it and guys up at the top going no and stepping on their little fingers you know, and they fall back down into the pit. That's your idea of hell? That's a travesty. That's a travesty. It's more like this. I remember years ago when I uh, was trying to rescue a little kitten. I mean, years ago, as a teenager, I was trying to rescue a little kitten from, uh, from drowning in a, in a very fast-moving stream, a river that had gotten swollen. And as I tried to rescue the kitten, and I tried to pick the kitten up, the kitten started biting and scratching me with all its might, and I was bleeding, and it was, I'd really hurt. And here's the reason why. My hand was the only thing supporting this kitten, and, hold, and, and it was the only thing between the kitten and oblivion. But the kitten believed that the thing that really was its life was actually threatening it, my hand. The kitten saw the hand as being a threat. The kitten saw a hand as trying to choke it. The kitten saw the hand as trying to control him. And so the very thing that was his life, he saw as death. Now, the Bible tells us it's just like that with God. God comes to us and he says, since I created you and you, see, only in me will you consist. And that means you cannot live your own way. You must not do your will. You must do my will. But if you do, oh, friends, says God, your character will become royal. You'll laugh louder. Your, your heart will be softer. Your vision will be more penetrating. Your understanding will be deeper. You know why? He says, if you try to be a king, you'll become a slave. But if you seek to be my slave, you'll become a king. And that's what God says. But that's not how we act. His hand comes in and he says, obey me. Give yourself to me. Let go of your life. Come to me. And he lifts us up. And all during this life, all during this life, no matter how hard we, no matter what we do, in this life, he never lets us go completely. We always stay intact. Our body and soul stay together. We stay, our humanity stays somewhat intact. But, in, but you see, until you receive Christ as Savior, you're just, you're biting his hand. You're scratching his hand. And what you're really saying is, let me go. Let me go. You know, you might be raised in a Christian home or something like that or has some kind of Christian background. You come to New York, and all you can see is, if I stick with traditional Christian morality, first, first of all, I'm going to be laughed at. Secondly, I can't sleep with whoever I want to sleep. I, with, I want to have control of my own life. And so you say, let me go. Now, you know what hell is? Hell is simply letting you go. If you persist 
and you persist, and you persist. You know what hell is? Hell is exactly what the world says freedom is. Hell is you belong to you. You have no God but yourself. Everything in life circulates around you. Everything in your life revolves around you. And as I told you, the more that happens, the more out of touch with reality you get, the more miserable you get, the less human you get. And this is exactly what's happened to this guy. If you look carefully, you'll see what's amazing about when, when this rich man begins to talk. First of all, he doesn't talk to God. He talks to Abraham. Secondly, he says, send Lazarus to cool my tongue. He's still treating Lazarus as if Lazarus is a servant. He's still treating, he's, he's still acting as if he's a great man and Lazarus is somehow some kind of servant. You see, he's got what he wanted all his life. You see, he is his own master. He belongs to himself. And so his view of reality is completely distorted. But most interestingly, what looks like compassion really isn't. Do you realize when he says, Father Abraham, you must send Lazarus back. You see, ordering Lazarus around. Father Abraham, you must send Lazarus back to speak to my five brothers because if they hear about this place, then they won't come. You know what that is? It sounds like concern. It's not. It's blame shifting. This is his way of saying, if I had a real fair shake. See, that's what happens to envious, proud, self-centered people. They'll never take responsibility ever. He says, well, you know, I didn't really get enough information. That's why I'm here. And I don't want my brothers to get here. Well, what that, what's that saying? It's saying, I, you know, I, I, I really shouldn't be here. I didn't get a fair shake. And what, is, what does uh, Abraham say? It's one, he devastates the argument. He says, my dear friend, if somebody rises from the dead and shows up, they're not going to believe. Don't you understand the reason you don't believe is not because of a lack of information? If you don't want to believe, you'll just write that off. So if Lazarus comes back from the dead, they'll say, oh, it was a hallucination. Wow. Abraham says, they've got the truth, you had the truth, but what you got here is a perfect example. This man will not ask for forgiveness. Why not? Because he's finally disintegrated. He's out of touch with reality. He will not ask for forgiveness. He will still order Lazarus around. You know, if a three-week-old three cadaver suddenly lifted itself up, smeared lipstick on its skeletal gums and started to try to flirt with you and come up against you, it would have the same effect as seeing this rich man acting as if Lazarus is still a servant. It would be silly if it wasn't so horrific. But that's what hell is. That's where you get. And let me put it to you this way. When, in the end, you finally get what you have been asking for all along, that's hell. Is there anything unjust about that? Lewis puts it so incredibly in his uh, chapter on hell and the problem of pain. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? But he's done so on Calvary. Well, to forgive them? But they won't ask for forgiveness. See, they've thrown that part of their heart away. To leave them alone? Alas, says Lewis. Alas. To leave them alone? Alas. That's just what God will do. There is nothing unfair about hell. They won't ask for forgiveness. They would say, I, don't have, I, I shouldn't be here and I am not 
going to ask for any bleeding charity. I shouldn't be here anyway. Don't you see that's what happens to you? You throw yourself away. You get that out of touch. You're totaled as a person. You're gone. You've thrown that part of your heart away. Now, lastly, how do we use this? We've seen that hell is a place of disintegration. We've seen that hell is a place of justice. We've seen where it comes from. It comes from making anything but God your help. It comes from a hollowing out that goes on because of sin and a disintegration that goes on because, of, because simply you make something else beside God your help. And you become a nameless, superficial, empty shell, a ghost, a crumbling, an odor of decay. Now, how should we use that on ourselves? I mean, how, how does this affect us practically? And I'll tell you, most Christians and most preachers kind of go at it this way, and I'll, I'll just mention it, but I'm not going to go at it this way because I don't think it's the most legitimate, I don't think it's the main reason why God tells us about hell. You see, one way in which you can use this on your heart is you shouldn't trifle with sin. If you have never received Christ as your Savior, sin can take you all the way downtown into hell. But friends, even if you're a Christian, sin brings disintegration now. And if there's any of you who have anything in your life that you are condoning, if there's anything in your life that right now you say, I know this is wrong, but, you know, I'll get around to doing something. I know this is wrong. How can you trifle with this? Do you see what it does? Do you see what it is? Fire. You know what you're like? When you say, well, I know the Bible says it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I should do something about it. But, you know, week in and week out it goes on. You know what you're doing? You're sort of like a person watching TV on a couch. At the other end of the couch, the other, you, you look over and you say, it's on fire. So what do you do? You're not being, doing what a normal person does. What you're doing is you're sitting there saying, well, I got 10 more minutes to the TV program. And I, I'll bet you it won't get over to me before. The, I'll just sit here and watch the rest of my show. You, you don't do that. The couch is on fire. Get up. Do something. Put it out. You don't play with fire. You don't trifle with fire. Everything could break down. Sin is fire. Sin is disintegrating. Sin is what hell is made of. It's a continuum. What are you doing? How can you stand there like that? All right. Well, so you, in other words, you can use the doctrine of hell to, you know, sort of scare us and all the saliva is gone after a while. Uh, you know, scared spitless. But I don't think that's how you should use it. I don't think that's really the main reason that God even brings it up. Unless you understand the doctrine of hell, you do not know how much God does and has loved you. What do you mean? You say, here's what I mean. That little cat. I held on to it. Not, not out of any virtue other than probably stubbornness, you know, so I got to be careful because in this, you know, in this illustration, I'm God, you know, and that's a little dangerous thing, but, but let me tell you something. In order to keep the cat, in order to keep the cat from falling into oblivion, into disintegration, into hell, I had a bleed. I bled a lot. And it's no different with God. You see, Jesus in Matthew 10 says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement. You know why? Because you know who he was talking to? He was talking to his disciples, and he knew that every one of his disciples were going to die a terrible death. He knew that they were going to have their limbs torn off of them while they were still alive. He knew that they were going to be impaled on stakes and covered with pitch and lit while still alive as human torches. He knew that some of them would have holes drilled in their skull and molten lead poured into them. 
He knew that some of them would just be thrown to the beasts and people would watch as the beasts tore them apart. These all happen. And Jesus knows what's going to happen. What does he say? He says, that'll be a picnic compared. That's a picnic in Central Park compared to hell. It's a pretty amazing statement. Now keep that in mind when you realize what Jesus paid on the cross. We're told that Jesus paid everything that we owe. Do you know that going to hell doesn't pay for everything? Our debt is so great before God that hell never pays it off because you never get out. And therefore, what Jesus experienced on the cross must have been far worse than an eternity in hell for a human being. And it doesn't, it, it makes perfect sense. If my wife were to reject one of you and say, I never want to speak to you again, that your pain would be infinitely less than my pain if she did it to me. And in the same way, as torturous, we've been seeing, as torturous as it is for God to withdraw his presence from a human being, it was infinitely worse for the Son of God who had been from all eternity in the bosom of the Father when God took away his presence from his Son. What Jesus experienced on the cross was worse than an eternity in hell. And then on top of that, remember, he took all of our hells. And then on top of that, it was compressed into three hours. Do you have any idea of what he did? Do you have any idea of what he experienced? Can you think about the disintegration? Can you think about all the justice? Can you think about him becoming a firestorm? Can you think about him raving and raging? Can you think about him crying out and in the dark with no one to listen? in some kind of cosmic and spiritual ways that we can never understand. Now, Isaiah talks about it when he says, We looked upon him and were appalled. He was disfigured beyond human appearance and his form marred beyond human likeness. But then Isaiah says, But though the Lord made him a guilt offering, the results of his suffering he shall see and be satisfied. Now, there it is. There it is. Unless you know what his suffering is, you have no idea how satisfied he is. He experienced some kind of suffering, and then when he saw the results of his suffering, which is us, you know what he says? I'm satisfied. That's, that means he looks at you after getting up from the most incredible suffering anyone has ever experienced. It's, un, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible. We, I've, been do, I've been spending 30 minutes trying to pile logic and arguments and metaphors and illustrations on top of each other so you get some idea of it. And he looks at you and he says, you're worth it. The results of his suffering he shall see and be satisfied. What does that mean? It means unless you know the depth of his suffering, you have no idea what you're worth. Unless you see the depths of his suffering, you have no idea of how much he loves you. If you trivialize and get rid of the doctrine of, of, of hell, you trivialize and you never will get a grip on the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. What could make you more, feel more loved than that? What could make you more feel, feel more valuable than that? How much are you worth? How much are you worth to him? This, this. The results of his suffering, he'll get up from and he'll look at you and say, it was worth it. Do you know what he did? Do you know what he did for you? Conclusion, think of what he did for you and make him your treasure and you'll get a name that lasts forever. But reject his mercy 
out of a desire to be your own person. You reject his mercy and you'll get his justice. And it's just. It's completely fair. Reject his mercy and get his justice. Or seek his mercy in light of what he's done. And make him your help. And make him your treasure. And you'll last forever. You see, this world, if you try to escape from him, becomes a suburb of hell. And this world, if you leap into his arms, lift up your hearts, becomes a suburb of heaven. But eventually, you've got to go downtown. Where are you going? Have you had your good things? Or can you say, God is my help? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that it's possible for us to know these things about the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ. We ask that you'd help us to be stunned appropriately. You'd help us to consider how much uh, sin is something not to be trifled with. But most of all, we ask that you would so move us by the beauty of what your son did that we can say, oh, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Make it so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.